The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. To be creative, and America is like laid out for you, right? If you are smart, if you are strong, if you're willing to work hard, it does, this is the narrative of America. No matter where you come from or what your family background is, you can succeed in life, which is a pretty cool deal because there's a lot of countries that it's not like that, a lot, of, a lot of cultures that it's not like that. But our story is that if you work hard, if you're smart enough, if you're talented enough, it doesn't matter what your background is like, you can rise to the top because the cream rises to the top. And so we have this sort of story like, that if I could just, if I was smart enough, if I worked hard enough, if I could work a little bit harder, I can make my dreams, this American dream of having the, the house and the cars and the two and a half kids. I don't even know what the number is anymore, but it sounds funny to say two and a half kids and the, and the dog and the picket fence and all the stuff that comes along, all the electronics, all the, the two, four weeks of paid vacation a year. Like this dream of America this, that, we, that, we are, that we buy into that's paid in front of us causes us to, to think like, man, if I could just work really hard, if I could do it, I could get there. And when we do it, those of us who succeed to some level, we have a sense of pride, don't we? If we're just really honest with ourselves, when we pass by somebody who's driving a car who's worse off than mine, when I pass somebody on the street who obviously has some sort of a substance abuse problem or some issue, if I'm dealing with somebody at work that just can't get their act together, I just think, man, the reason I'm doing well is I'm just better than they are. I'm just smarter, a harder worker. I'm willing to put in the time and effort. I'm willing to, to grit my teeth and force my way through it. And that performance pride is outward focused. It's looking around me for pictures of my success, indicators of my success, the opinion of other people, other people look at me and they say, wow. When they come to your house, they say, whoa, this is a nice house. And they comment on how nicely dressed you are or the car that you're driving. When you pull up beside somebody and we secretly look out the corner of our eye at the car beside us and we see they're driving the hoopty and I'm driving the nice whatever the thing is that I'm driving and I think, ah, point. I'm better than you are, right? I mean, let's just be honest. For You don't have to nod your head and give yourself away, but we all do this. Or if you're the person who's driving the hoopty, you look over beside you and you say, I'm not living up to the measure of success. Negative point. And we're judging and scoring ourselves all day long according to how we're measuring up by the outward standards. It could be something hard and concrete like where you live and what car you drive and what label you wear. Or it could be something more kind of nebulous in the, the opinion of other people and how they look at you whenever you ride into the office and you have your set-aside parking space or that feeling that you have inside when you drive up and you see the person who went to the same school the same educational background as you have, and they're driving in the nice car into the set-aside parking space, the assigned parking space, and they're walking inside to the corner office, and you're serving coffee, or you're answering phones, and you're like, nope, negative, 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 and the other side is positive. It's outward focus. It's fueled by the opinions of others or performance goals. 
so I can judge how well I'm doing by how well I'm meeting these particular goals that I have inside, inside my mind, inside my heart by how well things are going outside. And that fuels pride where it fuels despair. It fuels pride because you're always looking for somebody who is lower on the totem pole than you are so you can feel better about where you are. Isn't that the way it works? Like, you and I, this is the way pride works. Like, you can have a house that you love and a car that you love and a family that you love, but yet you go to a a high school reunion and you talk to that friend of yours and they tell you, they're just talking about their lake house and their beach house and they're talking about how their vacation in Europe and how they're getting ready to tour China and all of a sudden you feel terrible about your life. Whereas the hour before you were happy. All of a sudden it has a negative sour taste in your mouth. That's the way pride works. Pride isn't about achieving something. It's about achieving something and comparing myself to somebody else. C.S. Lewis said, here's the deal with lust. At least with lust, if, you, if you're a guy and you're lusting after a woman, at least you want her for herself. But pride says, I want to sleep with her just to prove that I can. Nothing about her. It's just to prove that I can do it. And that's really the way pride works in all of our lives. Not only is it fueled by the opinion and thoughts of others, but it takes more and more energy to perform. It never ends. How many of us have heard about stories of super, uber successful, the American success story, right? Guys like Steve Jobs and Henry Ford, people who worked from the bottom up and created things and they were smarter they were, did work harder they did sacrifice more than the people around them and they achieved amazing amounts of success and yet how many times do we over and over again hear that it's never enough for them they, they cross the line the finish line and they find like that was great but I need another finish line to cross talked about this before, but what, what do you hear if, if you're a sports fan after, after, the, after the, excuse me, the Super Bowl or the National Championship or God love you if you happen to be a baseball fan after the World Series and they, they interview you and they, they interview the guy, they say, hey, you know, what's it like? And then he says, man, it's great. We got to get back here next year already. They're in the moment, the, gra- the graffiti, the confetti is still falling down upon them. There's the, the, the smell of the champagne is still caked into their hair and already they're thinking about the next year because it never quite satisfied. It, it never ends because if you are driven and you're, and you're able to succeed and you're judging yourself by exterior goals, it never ever ends. It's like you're always coming to a cross street and there's another street to take. It's like you're living in a maze and you never get to an exit but you're running around frantically trying to find the cheese. But you never get to the end. It takes more and more energy to perform. And then finally, this um, performance pride, this outward focus, it results in self-degradation and depression when it's unrealized. 
When you either come to that, and this is what a midlife crisis is for most of us, when you get to that time in life where you realize, I'm not going to be as successful as I thought I was going to be. My marriage doesn't look like it thought I was going to look. I'm not living in the house that I thought it would look in. My, my body doesn't look like I thought it would look like. My life doesn't, is, I'm not going to be able to meet the standards that I was hoping to meet. Then we have depression. And we have personal degradation. Because I realize I can't meet the standard. And I don't know what to live for anymore if I can't cross that line. If I can't jump over that bar. And so we live in a state of disenchantment and depression with ourselves and with life around us. The second kind of pride that fuels who we are, one is the outward focused pride, it's the pride of performance. The second is an inward focused pride and it's the pride of self-esteem. This is something that's kind of a, a mer- our American contribution to the world of psychology. I'm not an expert in psychology. I have read a, a couple of articles on Wikipedia, so I feel like I'm, you know, qualified enough to talk about this. But it's really been in the past 50, 60 years an American sort of uh, invention that we call self-esteem. And I think it was kind of, it resulted from us as Americans, we have this narrative of if you work hard enough, sacrifice enough, you can achieve this level of success and when that doesn't work and I'm judging myself by exterior circumstances I don't measure up anymore I have to find I either have to be depressed or I have to find a new way of measuring myself and sort of this sort of idea of having self-esteem comes along and it's where like we pay people uh, to we stand in the crowd and we pay people to tell you like you're awesome and you can really achieve things they motivate us we, 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 we buy books to tell, like, yeah, you can be great. You're, you're awesome. Uh, my, my son was watching the Lego movie yesterday, and the, it's a great movie. But the narrative of the movie, it gets to the end, and uh, Emmett is talking to uh, uh, Mr. Business or whatever his name is. And, and Emmett says, hey, you are the, you're the, the smartest, most interesting man in the whole world the whole universe, and we all are. Well, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Nobody can be the smartest, most interesting man in the entire universe. Like, somebody is number two, right? Even if you're at the top of the list, like, no, not everybody can be number one, but this sort of American idea that everybody gets a trophy, everybody is great, everybody has some sort of, like, cool stuff inside them, and the problem is that that's fueled by an inward personal opinion, And in order for it to work, in order for me to really think like I'm awesome and I'm the most interesting person in the whole world, because I guarantee you, like, not everybody in this room is going to agree with that assessment of myself. And so in order for that to work, then I have to accept my opinion to be true and to the exclusion of everybody else around me. To the point that I'm going to get to a place where I can't hear correction on myself. Because if you burst that bubble that I have built of, like, of my personal awesomeness, like all the air comes out. And so I have to work harder and harder. It takes more and more energy. Which, by the way, can you see the pride in that? 
where I'm saying my opinion of myself, like I'm great and I'm awesome and there's nothing wrong with me. If somebody else comes around me and says like, hey, that is not true. You have a lot of stuff to deal with. And I say, I'm not going to listen to you. That's pride. It looks different. It may not be as, as obvious as the outward driven pride of the performance driven person, but it's definitely pride in itself. And that view of ourselves takes more and more energy to keep a positive opinion and a positive outlook. It takes more and more pumping on the tire pump in order to keep the bubble blown up around me. Because there's all kinds of exterior forces and exterior voices that are constantly barraging me to tell me that that's not true. And so I have to kind of live in my own little world that I've constructed to myself so I can feel safe and I can feel awesome. Because if I ever accept the opinion of outside, the whole thing falls down. And it results, just like the exterior-focused pride of performance focus that ends in self-degradation and depression, when it's unrealized, the same thing happens for the, self, the pride of self-esteem. When I get to a point, I have some personal crisis and I realize maybe I'm not as awesome as I thought I was, then I have to deal with depression and degradation as well. Both types of pride, the interior-focused pride and the exterior-focused pride, both share the same empty core. When he's talking about that don't be puffed up. The idea is something that's puffed up, that's sort of like filled with air on the inside or filled with nothing on the inside. It's not doing any good. It's enlarged beyond what it's supposed to be. There's, there's nothing in there. And we, they both share that same empty core. We're trying to cover this vague sense of nakedness that we all feel. And that goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they fall, they sin, they were created for God, and when they're, when they're separated from him, what does it say happens? It says they realized they were naked, and they ran and tried to find some way to cover their shame before God. And all of us are frantically, frenetically trying to find something to cover this vague sense of nakedness that we feel. That's the problem of pride. What's the folly of pride? Well, think about if that's true, then think about how that would play out in our relationships. If in order for me to, to feel good about myself, I'm either judging by my interior compass or I'm judging by what people around me are saying or certain uh, performance goals that I've met, then I'm going to always be comparing with other people. In order to feel good about myself, I'm going to be boasting. And so think about how that destroys our relationships. Think of how that creates distance between brother to brother, brother to sister, spouse to spouse, friend to friend. Because in order for me, I may love you, I may like you, I may value you, but in order for me to feel valuable myself, I have to create this distance between us by always comparing. And whenever I have the upper hand, always boasting. It separates from us, us from the most, those that we most need in our desperate attempt to feel or to be significant 
and worthy. And then by nature, it can only escalate. Think about that. That's sort of like endless maze that I was talking about. That's sort of like you're driving along and you're, you never get to your destination. There's always a cross street that you have to take. It can, the, the nature of pride, it means it can, only, it can only escalate. It can only get bigger. And it results in either, in either lower and lower self-esteem because I have unrealized dreams or yet uh, just one more turn, one more one more hard turn, one more thing, one more thing I have to do and then I'll feel good and you feel good and then that's not enough. You've got to do something else. So you're always having to escalate higher and higher and higher. I made this much this year. If I make that much next year or five years from now, I have failed. I have to do something to climb that ladder. And so we sacrifice all kinds of things. We sacrifice our marriages and our relationships with our kids. We sacrifice our health, all of the altar of self-esteem or all the altar of this outward performance-driven pride. And then think about not only that the fact that it's, it creates comparing and boasting, which separates us from each other, and that it, by nature, can only escalate. But think about how, it, how absurd it is to boast about the things that we boast about. If I were to take some kids in here and cut a piece of, and cut a pizza, and cut one slice bigger than all the other slices, what's going to happen to the kid who gets the bigger slice? They're going to party. They're going to. Hold it in the face of the other kids. They're going to be talking about how good it is. When the other kids are done, how they're still eating their one slice of pizza like they had anything to do with it. They just happened to get a larger slice of pizza. And that's what we're like when we boast either exteriorly or on the inside. And let's just be honest with ourselves. Like, nobody in here is super holy. We have these thoughts, even if you don't verbalize them and say them out loud because they're so rude. But when, we, when we're boasting either outside or inside about what we look like. Look, if you're beautiful, you didn't make yourself beautiful. Like, you may be trying to keep it tight at the gym, but you didn't make, it, you didn't make yourself beautiful. And we boast about it, but it's really like the same thing like you got a big piece of pizza. That's great. And that's what he's saying in verse, that's what he says in verse In verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You didn't create it. Those of us who have natural athletic ability, I don't happen to be one of these, so it's one I can easily talk about. Those of you that have natural athletic ability and we're playing on the, we're playing basketball, God help me, if I'm playing basketball with you or I'm playing something else, like, like, and we both, like I was watching last night, players, and I love college football, players who perform a great play, and then they're like getting all pumped up with the other players and in the crowd, like, no, look, that's awesome. You made a great play, but you, you can jump high. Congratulations. Like, it just happens to be ingrained in your genetics, but yet we boast about it as if I made myself to be able to do that. You might be working hard in order to keep up your strength, make yourself stronger and faster, but it, you... Look, I can work out hard. I have done it before. You might be looking at me and not, you can't realize that. But I have at times worked out hard before and I was in better shape than I am now. But I will never compare to the athlete. Even if he doesn't work out, you just happen to have it in your genetics. We boast about our natural talents. 
Some of us are naturally musically inclined. Some of us are naturally good at writing. Some of us are naturally good at talking. Some of us are naturally good at fashion. Some of us are naturally good at all kinds of things. Like, that is great and that is awesome, but if, could you go back and make yourself have those certain abilities? I cannot make myself play a musical instrument well, even if I wanted to. It's just not inside me. I could, like, take some lessons and learn how to make it tune, but I will never be musically gifted. It's just not in me. It's like getting a smaller slice of pizza or a bigger slice of pizza, but we boast about that which we were given and act like we didn't, like we didn't, somebody didn't hand it to us. Some of us boast about our intelligence. Some of us about our family background. <laughs> Look, you can study and you can keep a good relationship with your family, but you have no control over that. Some of us boast over what we make, but if you are honest with yourself, and you might be making bank, but if you're honest with yourself, isn't there somebody that you knew from school who was just as smart as you were? just hard a worker as you are, but for some reason they just didn't catch the break this, that you got? Or maybe you have somebody who, they have something that, some sort of issue in their life that keeps them from succeeding, but if you grew up in their household, if you came from where they came from, might you have the same issue that they have? We boast about what we were been given as if we didn't receive it from somebody else. It's the folly, it's the foolishness of pride. Even our good decisions are hard to trace back solely to us, aren't they? I mean, it's good to make, it's better to make good decisions than poor decisions. It's better to make wise decisions than stupid decisions. But how many of you, like, whenever you really think about it, you're just like, hey, I made this good decision, but that's because I was, you know, I had a, I, had, I was raised well, or I had a friend who helped me kept from making the bad decision, or you know, we can easily see how it could have gone off the rails if something slightly different had happened. Would you still make the same choice? See how foolish it is to boast about things, be prideful of things? Let's look at the persistence of pride. Even if you and I were to accept the fact that being prideful and boasting is, is destructive and that it, it, end, it ends nowhere. It just keeps escalating until we're either dead and have killed ourselves or we're so disappointed that we fall into a depression. Even if you and I were to accept that, can you really stop yourself from it? There are certain things that uh, the different cultures and classes don't share. There are certain things that we do share, no matter what culture or what class that you come from. Uh, it's like in America, fruit flies and baseball. We all, we all have those. We can't get away from them. No matter how rich you are, if you happen to get fruit flies in your house, it is incredibly difficult to get them out. You can't just will them out of there. It's an incredibly difficult situation to get them out of there. And we all have the plague of baseball in our lives, whether we're rich or poor or southern or northern. It's just all happens to be a part of our life. And one of the plagues that we all share as human beings is the plague of pride. And you can't get away from it. It's burrowed away into every heart. 
even in the most unlikely places. Some of us think that we're the least prideful people. And you think, yes, you're talking to so-and-so that I know. I am the least prideful person that I, that I know. Look, you don't know me. I, I am down all the time. I know just how terrible a person I am. I have a low view of myself. I'm painfully aware of my faults and weaknesses. I'm not puffed up. I am deflated. But you know what? That's still a preoccupation with yourself and with myself. Some of the most prideful people I know are some of the most depressed people that I know. I'm not talking about clinical depression here, by the way. Some of those prideful people I know are like, you know, the, you know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, who the cloud's always over his head and it's always raining. They seem to not be the prideful, boastful person. But they're so preoccupied with their self and what's wrong with themselves, they can't get past it or beyond it. Pride is burrowed away into every human heart. Because if you're in that instance, everything that you're thinking about, every time, every time you, somebody's talking about their success and you have failure, somebody's talking about how talented they are and you see how untalented you are, you can't enjoy somebody else's success without it hurting you even harder. That's a prideful preoccupation with self. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could enjoy somebody else's success without it driving us crazy? I have wanted to, because some people have told me like, look, you're a Clemson fan, so you should pull for the South Carolina Gamecocks personal to say is you should pull for the South Carolina Gamecocks if they play anybody else except Clemson because they're from South Carolina. And so I decided I'm going to try to do that. That sounds very like altruistic and noble. I cannot bring myself to do it. Secretly, I was pulling for every single pass to be intercepted and every game to be lost. I just could not help it. I, I tried. I could not help it. And we're like that in life. It's sort of like it feels zero sum to us. Like somebody else can't achieve without me getting knocked down the rung. I walk on the beach. The beach is beautiful. It might be a sunset. I'm with my wife. There's seagulls flying overhead. Like there's porpoises jumping out of the ocean. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful day. Like nobody else is around me. Like, like nobody in a Speedo or nobody walking their dog and pooping beside me. Like it's one of those perfect moments at the beach. And yet I walk by these beautiful how, giant houses along the ocean. And my day feels a little bit worse all of a sudden. Because though this is an awesome setting, I don't own one of those houses. Why can't I enjoy it? Because of pride. Paul isn't describing having a low judgment of ourselves. He's describing not judging ourselves at all. Look at verse uh, 4. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So he's at, for, in verse 3, he says, uh, uh, I'll even go back, he says that, uh, uh, 
But with me, it's a very small thing. He's dealing with this thing where the, uh, where the local church of Corinth was thinking maybe he wasn't that great a guy, wasn't that great a, a, an apostle, and they were choosing to be on team of Paulus. He says, but it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So, he, so first of all, that sounds like he's saying, I'm in this self-esteem. Like, I don't care what you say. I'm awesome. I'm the apostle Paul. I'm great. But the next verse he says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Just because I think I'm cool, doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. He says, it's the Lord who judges me. He's not describing us not judging, uh, of us having a low judgment of ourselves or having a high judgment of ourselves. He's describing not judging ourselves at all or not thinking about ourselves at all. Some of us maybe decide, like, okay, I'm not going to be prideful and I'm going to change the way that I speak and act. So I'm not going to say the things that I would normally say. I'm not going to, when I, when I, you know, I'm just imagining here, like crazy. Like if I, when I dunk the basketball, I'm not going to get all excited about it. I'm not going to, you know, point in other people's face. I'm not going to, I'm going to be very humble in the way that I respond. But you know what happens? When you start doing that, you start taking pride in your humility. You start taking pride in your progress and how you don't act the same way that you used to. We will compare, we're still doing the same thing. We're comparing our humility to that of others. It's the same thing that we're doing. We're just using different currency. Acting humble does not make us humble. So what's the cure for pride? What Paul is saying is very different from the other answers of our culture. The answer isn't for us to perform so that people will give us their approval because he says he's not being judged by the people. And the answer isn't for them to think better about themselves because he says he doesn't judge himself. He's saying the answer is to realize what you are made for. Realize what you are made for, number one. And number two, to experience who you are made for. There's a cure for pride. But you and I cannot cure itself because it's burrowed so deep into our hearts. It's like a cancer that has entwined itself with the very fiber of the core of our being. He says, first of all, look at these three points that you have to realize what you are made for. Look at verse 7 that we already pointed out. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He says, first of all, you have to realize that you were created like everyone else. Like you didn't make yourself awesome. Just like everybody else in the world, you were created. You didn't spring into being. You weren't always existing like God is. Like you came from nowhere, from nothing to something. You are a created being. And then he says uh, that we have to realize that we came into the world empty-handed like everybody else. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? So why do you boast about it? We came into the, into the world. Think about a little baby that's born, brings nothing into the world. And just so we take nothing out, we bring nothing to the table. If somebody did not care for us and keep us as, a, as a, an infant, we would die. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. We, everything that you have, your ability to be nurtured at that early age, your ability to, to grow in whatever environment you have, your natural talents and abilities that you have, you didn't put them in your own hands. Somebody else put them there for you. And then he says, you have to realize that we're broken. 
like everyone else. That there's this problem that's burrowed, that's entwined in the core of our hearts. We're broken like everybody else. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't just, we realize what we're made for. What that does is that combats the pride. It combats the boasting. It quiets it enough so that we can see sort of the, the way things really are. What would I boast about? It was all given to me. It was all placed into my empty hands. But then the thing that does it, the thing that seals the deal, the thing that goes to the heart of the problem of pride and cures the problem, the thing that cures the cancer, that pulls it away from being wrapped in an entwined in the way that we think about ourselves and the people around us, is to experience, not just realize what we were made for. You were made to be that empty cup. You were made to be that empty bellow, that, that empty thing. You were made to be puffed up, but not with that emptiness. You were made to be filled. And the filling happens as you experience the one for whom you were created. You experience, as we see in verse 4, the grace of Jesus that was unwanted. Not only did you come in the world empty-handed and broken, but whenever you did not want grace, Jesus came and gave you grace. He gave you himself. And not only that, but you experienced the grace of Jesus that was unmerited and unearned. You came into the world empty-handed. Things were placed in your hand. You have nothing to give back to him. It's totally unearned, unmerited. If there's any way to earn it or any way to merit it, you cannot earn his grace. You cannot earn his love. You cannot earn a connection with him. That connection with him that we were talking about was broken, that caused us to feel this vague sense of nakedness and shame. The grace came unmerited and unearned to you. And then you experience the grace of Jesus that was freely offered. Not only could you not earn it, you could not, you could not have any way to merit it. It was freely offered to you with no stipulations, no conditions. And then you experience the grace of Jesus that is and was more than you could have imagined. It's like, it's like, having Niagara Falls unleashed upon you. It's not just enough grace and enough love to forgive you of your sins and unite you back to the Father and then like put you at point zero. It's the kind of grace that continually pours out to you, that upholds you and keeps you and empowers you, where if you were left alone, if the, the flow were ever stopped, you would fall back down to the state that you were once in. But the flow continues to pour un, undammed, unstopped, pouring out more than you could imagine, more than you could have hoped for, like Niagara Falls pouring out upon you. And you experience the grace of Jesus that is never endingly being poured out upon you. Not just more than you could imagine, but never ending. Just when you think you've crossed the level where it was too much, it continues to pour. Inexhaustible more than you could imagine forever. The cure for our pride is to realize what you were made for. You were made to be empty. And then to experience the one for whom you are created and that is what fills the emptiness. 
And so no longer do you have to try to frantically and frenetically search for something outside or something inside that makes you feel good about yourself and keeps your score high because the score is never endingly just pouring like a, like a, like a video game that you hit tilt on and it just keeps on going and going and going and going. You and I were made to be empty in order to be filled. And the cure for our pride is to realize what we were made for and who we were made for. And that can create in your heart and in my heart and our community a community of humble people. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.